Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Rachel Stewart. I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Kent, and I am going to allow our guest today to introduce herself. She's going to discuss her work, and this is another of the Sex, Sex Work and Sexualities series. Hi, Rachel. Thanks so much for inviting me. My name is Dilara Yarbrough. I'm an assistant professor of criminal justice studies at San Francisco State University, and my research focuses on how different types of governmental responses to poverty either perpetuate or interrupt racial and gender and class inequalities. Um, What I'm most interested in is how grassroots movements and radical harm reduction can help end the policing of poverty. And so the book that I'm working on is called Abolitionist Care, Um, And it describes how poverty relief services that are provided by and for sex workers and transgender women of color actually disrupt carceral logics that um, normally govern service provision. Um, So in the book, I give the examples of a wonderful peer-led radical harm reduction provider in San Francisco, the St. James Infirmary, Um, and another organization um, that's led by and for formerly incarcerated transgender women called um, the Transgender, Gender Variant and Intersex Justice Project um, as models for what I'm calling abolitionist care um, and and organizations that all of our listeners should donate to. (laughs) (laughs) So today we're talking about an article that you wrote back in 2019. Can you tell us what the article is called, please? Yeah, it's called um, Nothing About Us Without Us. It was a long title. Um, And it's it's about um, kind of the dominant representations of sex work and poverty in research about these topics. Um, And it's about kind of the harmful, pathologizing, exotifying trends that we see in research about these topics. Okay, so what prompted the article? The article (laughs) was prompted, I think, by a number of things. Number one, I was doing a lot of participatory action research. um, And projects that I felt like, you know, directly, we had a very clear goal to impact policy. um, And and we were making policy change with teams of people directly impacted by criminalization. Um, And so the research was very clearly a tool and a means to an end. At the same time, I was working kind of on um, a book project based on Um, ethnographic research I'd done about the harms of criminalization and medicalization and all these kind of bad um, (laughs) approaches to service provision and the harms of policing. Um, 
And I also, you know, kind of working um, with these different groups, participated in and, and observed protests against other researchers whose work that, um, you know, whose work was very harmful and, and um, really exhibited these kind of objectifying, exotifying um, trends in research, but also had really detrimental policy consequences. Um, and, you know, as I was writing about these events, it became clear to me <laughs> that um, I also needed to kind of turn that critical lens on myself and on my own process um, and really think about all of these things that were coming up, you know, should people who are not experts because they haven't had direct experience with, you know, whatever um, type of oppression that they're writing about, be doing that type of writing, you know, under what conditions should that happen? Um, how can researchers and, um, you know, people who have really good intentions um, and want to support political organizing, um, how can researchers make sure that they're not contributing to more surveillance and harm? And so, so these were the questions. So, so for people that don't know, can you describe to us what participatory action research is? Because obviously it's our, it's our stock in trade, but not everyone else is as familiar yeah. with um, yes. So participatory action research is when, um, in, in most cases, a group of people who are um, interested in making a policy change who are directly affected by some type of harm in the world. Um, in the cases of the projects that I've done, it's been... Um, you know, the criminalization of transgender women in shelters, the criminalization of homelessness through enforcement of um, quality of life and anti-homeless laws, people who are themselves unhoused, um, wanting to intervene and end <laughs> the criminalization that's affecting them. And so participatory action research just means that um, the research isn't just to know something, it's for the purpose of doing something, okay. for the purpose of making a very concrete change. Um, and in the best cases, <laughs> the problem is defined and the project is directed by the people who have that lived experience with whatever the issue is that they're trying to change. Yeah, I think it's just called the praxis as well, isn't it? Um, yeah. Uh, Ferrer, I think, calls it praxis. I think Maggie O'Neill calls it praxis as well. But it is kind of, it is problematic as well, isn't it? Because it's a case of, you know, maybe someone from the outside trying to alter a problem that they perceive. Yes, exactly. And so, um, yes, the question of who gets to define the problem, I think, is crucial, right? Because, um Often when, when people who haven't lived and experienced that problem come from outside and want to define the problem, that problem can be um, perceived and defined very differently by, by people who are going through it every day. Yeah. Um, and so that was kind of the, you know, 
the tension that I felt in my work um, collaborating with organizations of, you know, unhoused activists um, or organizations led by um, transgender women of color and just asking, what do you need from me? You know, how can my work as a researcher support um, your organizing work? And this kind of um, other type of experience that I was, I was having as I tried to um, do more traditional research and writing um, and was really questioning, you know, what, what kind of change is this gonna make? Who am I <laughs> to decide, you know, what's needed? Um, and, you know, just, I think particularly with ethnography, um, this is a tradition that is often outsiders observing and surveilling hmm. marginalized groups, right? And so um, it's important for anyone who does that type of research to really be mindful of that tradition and, and um, really observe themselves as well to, to see how they might or might not be contributing to that. Yeah. But also as well, I mean, I think I think we have to be careful as well when we sort of like as researchers, when we when we're studying groups that we may have belonged to at one point, but we don't always still belong to that in itself, you know, sort of not only are people sort of like in and, you know, can be outside of a group, they can be inside, but their knowledge is dated. Yeah. So even when you've got kind of like a, an extra level of access to a group by virtue of your shared history with a group. Mm-hmm you you may not still be relevant you know yeah. you may not still be relevant and and I you know I've researched sort of um sort of workers in in areas that I've been engaged in in the past and you know I have to be very conscious that I don't do that I'm not there anymore and actually I bring with me the shadow of the university yeah, yeah? the shadow of the university is can be quite overwhelming it can be overwhelming for the um for the uh, for the people that you're talking to, mm-hmm. it can give you an authority that you don't feel like you have, and you may not even notice that you have. But it can really change the power dynamics in the relationships that you're engaged with. You know. So tell us, how did when did you start to realize that that research was and can cause harm? Oh, that's a good question. I think you know, rather than one moment of epiphany that I can easily identify. I think um, there there are probably millions of small moments, right? Um, Let's see, there's, there's, there are a few examples that I can think of, um, you know, trying to kind of navigate um, strategically marshalling uh, these ideas about researchers as experts um, that happened early in my career, um, right after I I got a job in a university um, that that I could share. But I think I think that's a great question. I think you know there are so many moments, um, probably uh, probably always um, I was aware that research could cause harm, but I was surprised, I think, on multiple occasions about um, realizing all the different ways in in which that could happen. 
right? And it's it's not as simple as, um, you know, the examples I share in this article of Melissa Farley and George Kelling, who are researchers who support, um, you know, criminalization of the sex industry um, in the case of Melissa Farley and in the case of George Kelling, of course, broken windows policing, which has harmed um, people of color and (laughs) sex workers and all sorts of different groups of people, right? It's not as simple as, as kind of examples like that, that we all think of and can kind of um, point to people like that and absolve ourselves as researchers, right? Like you said, it's so much more complex. Um, Even the assumptions that um, a researcher makes when they're asking someone a question in the interview context um, could feel harmful, right? Or even um, the, in, in kind of presenting, research to um, the public or to policymakers, the designation of someone with a PhD as an expert. Yeah. It erases, even however unintentional it is on the part of the person with the PhD, can erase um, the expertise of everyone that that person talked with. Um, and all of the kind of stories that that person compiled to say whatever it is that they're saying, right? And so um, I've learned over the years to be really cautious, <laughs> um, even coming on a podcast like this, right? When someone asks me to step into this role of expert or researcher or, you know, speak about um, the the research and the work that, um, that I've done, uh, really cautious about, you know, participating in something like that. And also about, um, clarifying that having a degree (laughs) doesn't make me or anyone else an expert. Um, and in fact, the ways that kind of expertise is portrayed and, um, marshaled can be very harmful yeah yeah it can it can certainly maintain the status quo even even with the intention of doing some good I I I acted as a consultant for somebody who was trying to do some research in Ireland and they wanted to interview street women in in a hotel they wanted to take them off the street for a weekend and you know the women that they were looking to interview are heroin addicts. How are you going to how are you going to legislate that? How are you going to logist you know what's the logistics for that? You know, and then what about at the end of the weekend? What are you going to just go and drop them off off the street when they've like you know they've had two days in a luxury hotel? I mean, you know their intentions was re- were really good, but actually there's so much harm inherent in that type of you know paternalistic approach to um to 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 other people that it's yeah. you know. It's, it's yeah. quite shocking. It's quite shocking. But, you know, I've, I, you know, I'm a researcher as like common ground with like the people that I research. And I'm aware that sometimes I've asked questions and, and I've seen, I've seen the impact of the question really hurt someone in a mm-hmm. situation where afterwards they're just going to go back out and, and hustle. And, you know, even with the best intentions, research can be harmful. Yes. You know? It's yes. a bit like tourism. It spoils what it yes. touches sometimes, you know? Exactly. Yes. And actually, um, you know, I had I had a, a 
conversation with um, staff at um, one of the organizations that I was working with that I shared in that article that you read. Um, and, and a staff member was very concerned because this organization was just being besieged by requests from researchers who wanted to talk with um, street-based sex workers in particular, right? This had become a hot research topic. Um, and, you know, the, the staff member got fed up and said, you know, we, we are uh, a place to help sex workers survive and to provide services. We're not um, a zoo of customizable prostitutes. And I remember that phrase, right? Because I think that that is often the way that sex workers in particular, but just in general, marginalized groups are objectified um, in research. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a touristic collection of stories that um, don't belong to (laughs) researchers, right? And, And curation and display. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. And you know, it's funny because I'd actually picked up that that phrase from your article. I was going to ask you about that. But I so but I won't ask you about that now. But I am going to ask you about this other really cool phrase that you used. And I want you to kind of like unpack it for me. So can you break down for us the quote that research trades in pathologization, paternalism, and extractive exotification? That's a beautiful phrase. (laughs) Extractive, extractive exotification. Um, I mean, I, I think it's kind of like something you said earlier, right? It just means the researcher visits like a tourist, um, extracts or just takes what, uh, what, what they think will be interesting, what they want to learn about, and then presents it in this kind of exotic way um you know victor rios says something similar called the jungle book trope right where someone goes into this unfamiliar land and lives to tell the tale right and a lot of um a, a lot of presentations and research feel like this it's extraction it's taking without giving anything back and it's exotifying um portraying groups of people as almost like specimens. Mm. Um, yeah. 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 I've, I've, you know, I'm, I'm quite aware. I'm quite aware of the, you know, like over the course of my own research, I've become quite aware of there's almost like a touristy element and what happens to your guides when you've left, how does that, you know, you get taken into the interior of whatever it is that you're, you're researching. Right. What happens to the guides after you left? How are they? How are they then, sort of, you know, you know, considered by their community? But also, as well, um, you know, how are you? You know, what is it that you actually get to see? Yeah, are you seeing like a performance? Mm-hmm. You know, or are you seeing the kind of like you know the highlighted version of what people think will interest you? Yeah, and I think that's often the case, right? So um, the place where I live, the San Francisco Bay Area, there are a lot of universities, there's a lot of research going on. Um, And something that I noticed, you know, while I was working um, with a lot of organizations and kind of 
doing my own research is people would ask me, um, do you know of any studies I can be in, right? Because it's a way to, to make money through a gift card or a stipend. Um, and, and I noticed that people often kind of tailored their um, stories or even their medical history in the case of medical studies to the criteria of the study, really trying to give the researchers what they wanted um, as just another way to, to get what's needed for survival. Mm. Um, and so I think we also have to consider how research is its own kind of economy, right? It's an industry. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have like this huge issue around like the payment of like, payment of participants because they should be paid but the amount that the universities especially are prepared to pay seems to pretty well fall in line with what they're prepared to pay sort of like you know sort of you know sort of like practice like academics you know sort of uh, sort of like PhD students and stuff like that who ultimately are going through some sort of like almost like an apprenticeship so they are ultimately going to end up earning a lot more money but you know to pay someone for what is basically a part of their narrative that they've then got no control over to pay them a pittance i think a it's really bad because it really it really skews research around those who are either desperate or don't or don't have you know who have time on their hands often because they're less busy with what they're doing now when i was studying sort of like webcam performance and i would i would offer them you know what the, the university had given me to offer which was a 20 pound like book token and they'd be like yeah. go away I'm on like 200 quid an hour I don't want to talk to you and then you had to, to get real right to say to them listen it works talking to me because actually if you don't talk for yourself you get spoken for and you know in my research what I'm seeing is everyone focusing on your engagement with the customers and nobody's talking about your engagement with the webcam hosting site you know so either don't speak or speak so that you can actually be heard you know, put the money to one side, but I felt I was able to do that because we had that sort of common ground. But you know, the 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 uh, the, the you know the element of money needs to be addressed. I believe, you know, yeah. we need a grown-up conversation about that. I think so too. I mean, I also think you know that um, it's a it's a good hustle. Like it's a good it's a good way to. Um, Participating in, in research projects in the most expedient way possible is, is really a way that um, some people make money. And so the issue for people who don't just do these kind of one-off, um, you know, uh, one interview or one, you know, blood draw or, or whatever, all these types of research, um, I think the issue, just as you said, is to really um, create a situation where as much as possible, people have ownership and agency and choice in deciding what stories they'll tell and how those will be presented. And so um, a colleague of mine, Jennifer James, um, I really learned a lot from her uh, way of doing research because, you know, she had this, this method um, based in the tradition of 
Black feminist methods, um, where she collaboratively with her research participants kind of created the narratives. And so she would, um, you know, interview someone, write down their story, listen to the story and, and show them the story. Um, and then work on that story again together, right? And so I think, and, and knowing her, um, I, I know that this is a, a true process of collaboration and not the kind of coercion that so often yeah. happens in research. And that to me was really inspiring and um, helped, helped me think about these issues um, about narrative and who owns narratives, but it is an anxiety that continues to consume me yeah. as I work on this book. But I think as well, there's an, it, it also puts a kind of a responsibility on the researcher to try and access populations without the use of, of, of um, a gatekeeper. You know, mm-hmm. I, I've just, you know, I spoke to someone earlier today who, whose podcast comes out immediately before this one, uh, you know, about the queer repossession of the word ratchet. And um, she talks about her access to to black queer women who know, you know, who, who aren't accessed because she actually belongs to that community. You know, and so that's that's an important thing as well is to sometimes make sure that, you know, that you, you're not going through the same sort of channel so that you're not interviewing the same people, you know, like otherwise. And that in itself skews, skews the research because I've been making myself very unpopular for, for a while because I'm saying we can't always be going to activist groups because not everyone, for example, in the case of sex workers, mm-hmm. is an activist. In fact, most sex workers aren't activists because most sex workers don't come into contact with the police. Yeah, or, you know, all the authorities, they just, it's a side hustle that doesn't really, you know, d- doesn't bring them into contact with the criminal justice system. So, you know, that, that and that means that there's a whole pool of people that we're not necessarily accessing. So, you know, as, um, you know, as, as researchers, recipes sound kind of aware. So anyway, so you describe your research as, as an intellectual ethnography. What do you mean by that? Yes, so that means that I'm not doing an ethnography of people (laughs) as the object of study. I'm not looking at marginalized people as an object of study. My research is not about sex workers. My research is not about unhoused people. Um, My research is partly about the production of knowledge (laughs) about these groups Um, and also by these groups of people. Um, but, and, and so um, that's again, kind of turning uh, the lens on the research industry and on how knowledge is produced, yeah. um, which wasn't something I was thinking about a whole lot <laughs> when I started um, doing research, but it, it, it became something that I, I started to think about more and more. Um, and I also think, you know, the question of, of whether and under what conditions ethnographic research with marginalized groups should be done um, is an important one. I think if this type of research is done, um, it should be about systems of oppression, the object of study, 
should be the institutions that are producing inequality. It should be state violence and how that works. Um, and while it's true that the experiences of people who are most directly affected by state violence um, do provide a unique lens, I would also raise the question for any researchers who might be listening of, of how, especially, you know, if, if they're thinking of doing work with marginalized groups or in solidarity with marginalized groups, how researchers might be able to um, kind of marshal our ability to access um, institutions like police departments mm. or other state agencies that are perpetrating these harms in ways that are hidden. And so can the traditions of <laughs> um, you know, close observation and analysis and honestly, sometimes surveillance um, be turned on um, the, the kind of hidden machinations of, of the state and kind of illuminate um, those processes maybe in a different way. Um, so that's a question that, that I think is very valuable for researchers to think yeah. about. I am, um, yeah, I sort of, uh, yeah, it's like a sort of pragma pragmatic approach to actually how how you can actually come together and rather than sort of, sort of like, you know, solve a problem that's perceived is to actually gather knowledge before you even ask, ask a question. Exactly. You know, I, you know, I have a large issue with, you know, sort of like a lot of research that sets out to answer a question. Is a question right. even valid? Is a question valid right. if you've generated it from loads of other um, sort of like, you know, academic research, which is quite often yeah. second or third hand produced. Yeah. So can you tell us how, um, how, so you're talking in your article about oppressive knowledge production. How has that impacted the field of poverty research? Mm -hmm. um, partially in, in the ways that we talked about of treating people as objects and, and treating poverty as um, the result of individual decisions or, you know, kind of the tradition of research about poverty often invisibilizes the institutional and political and economic processes that cause poverty, right? By focusing in on poor people, um, researchers often make it seem like the cause of poverty is poor people. We will never end poverty by studying poor people um, because poor, you know, people experiencing poverty do not cause poverty. Poverty is caused um, by these bigger systems and, and processes. Similarly, the question that is often asked um, related to sex work, um, particularly in criminology, is why do people get into sex work and what's the most effective way to get them out? That's the wrong question <laughs> um, because that assumes that people, it, it assumes that sex work is a problem, right? Um, sex work is not a problem. The problem is so many problems, right? But, but an exploitative low wage labor market, um, 
racial capitalism, you know, conditions that um, affect all workers in the formal and informal economy um, that are caused by kind of the bigger systems that then become invisibilized when, when researchers focus on marginalized people as objects of study. Yeah. I think I think also always the question would be, well, why is sex work so attractive? Yeah. Not what's wrong with it. It's like why is it so so attractive? Why is it so attractive to researchers, right? Oh why uh, is it so attractive to the people who do it? I mean, you know, yeah. that that's the thing, isn't it? Because uh, if you got if you kind of like got into conversations about, you know, like the amount of time that you then have on your hands to do other stuff, you know, that's what I was getting through with my research. People have time on their hands if they they do sex work because they don't have to work for very long. You know, and if yeah. you're doing it online, you don't have to go anywhere to do it. You just roll roll your camera on and then roll it off a couple of hours later with a few hundred dollars in your hand. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, it it can be a great vehicle for um having lots of time and having mobility, right? Um, I think also for a lot of people who I've talked with who've experienced housing deprivation and who have worked in low-wage formal economy jobs, right? People people I've talked with have gone from telemarketing into sex work, from construction into sex work. Um, you know, someone um, told me about experiencing anti-Black racism and discrimination in his job as a construction worker, and doing sex work became a way to earn enough money um, after the conditions of that low-wage, exploitative, racist, formal labor market um, became untenable. Mm. And so I think part of the problem with a lot of research about sex work and sex workers is it just kind of freezes people um, in this one kind of moment in time, in this one like this job becomes some kind of deviant identity. Yeah, it's a job. It's a way people make money, right? Um, and yeah, I keep thinking it more and more in terms of like punctum, where you focus on that one incident, that one image. You know, there's a real fetishization about it. So back to the article, I love the phrase: the intention to contribute to social change does not preclude openness to a multiplicity of viewpoints or threaten the valid validity of findings. Mm-hmm. Talk us through that. Okay. <laughs> so there are a lot of people in the research world who think that research should be a pure and objective quest <laughs> for knowledge about something that researchers should not um, have an idea of the the political or economic changes that need to happen in the world around them, that researchers shouldn't work with um, political organizers and, you know, should kind of stay away from applied policy um, commentary because um, some people think that this biases research. 
Um, there are many things wrong with this perspective. <laughs> <laughs> right. We know. We, we know from from fem feminism and feminist research that um, objectivity is a myth, um, and that this myth has been used to empower um, people with you know, um, more, more, already more power and more privilege in society to kind of um, extract and objectify and comment on the lives of marginalized people in ways that perpetuate the status quo, right? And so objectivity, um, usually when people are calling for objectivity, they're calling <laughs> actually to continue the status quo and, and the silencing yes and continue the silencing um of people other than themselves <laughs> who you know are the objective experts quote unquote yeah and yeah. we're not going to get even into the discussion of who wants those those kind of like you know those remote un, unattached unbiased findings but you'll find a lot of them, you know, a lot of male, white, male, cis, you know, global northwest. We will leave it there. Can you describe how your work engages with the notion of respectability politics? Yes. So um, respectability politics is kind of this idea that the more um, sympathetically that one can portray members of a marginalized group, and I'm putting sympathetically in quotes, right, to um, kind of mainstream dominant society, right, um, the, the better the political outcome will be. And so um, a lot of times, even people in kind of left political movements um, can be concerned about engaging with the fact that um, some people who don't have housing do criminalized work to survive, including sex work, right? Um, some people who don't have housing use drugs. Um, and sometimes <laughs> in political organizing around um, housing justice and in research as well, um, the many, many people who are concerned about this idea of respectability says, um, would say, um, let's not talk about people who are doing things that kind of mainstream society would deem not respectable or not appropriate um, because we want to have the best political impact that we can and that requires a sympathetic portrayal yeah um, and i think that you know that logic um is really about political expediency but the people who end up being harmed by that approach to research and to organizing are the people who are most marginalized people who are whose survival strategies and identities are criminalized um, and, and who can get left behind when 
um, researchers or, or organizers put, you know, kind of uncritically accept these mainstream ideas about respectability. And so for me, I think it's really important to, to challenge the, the idea that um, some activities or some types of work are respectable and some are not. Yeah. I think we need to say that logic is, is wrong and we can't let that into our, our work, our research work or our political work. But also as well, it's a really convenient way of sidestepping the the damage of some political politics, because I'm thinking about an interview that I did with a woman about a year or two ago. And she she was a sex worker, but she'd not been arrested. for. She'd just come out of prison. It was I interviewed her on a, a Sunday. She'd been released from prison on Wednesday. She'd not eaten in that time. She literally had the clothes that she stood in. And she was rough sleeping and she's like, her drug use was really, was really intense and quite heavy. Well, very heavy. And she's like, well, why wouldn't I use? Why wouldn't I use? But she was constantly being arrested for, for having like, you know, crack packs. She wasn't being arrested for sex work because nowadays the narrative is around, yeah. you know, viewing them as, viewing sex workers, street sex workers as victims, but she's still being arrested. Yeah. It's just the narrative has been arrested. But, you know, when you looked at a, a, a sort of her personal history, there was no reason not to use. Why wouldn't you use? You know? Yeah. But if you, if you sort of like, if you sort of whitewash those stories, what you yeah. do is you just have someone whose behaviour just seems problematic and bizarre. Right. Yeah. And, and it erases a part of people's lives that... <laughs> is important, right? When we, when we think about, um, or when I think about a lot of people who participated in my research, um, a lot of people experience policing, not just related to sex work, but related to race and gender identities, right? Like police profiling of women of color, of transgender women, um, as well as laws against drug use and possession, laws criminalizing homelessness and migration. And so um, when we kind of just extract one little part of a a story or experience out and make that the thing, um, just like you said, it, it, I think it weakens our, our movements as well as our analysis. But it also really impacts our credibility with the people that we're, 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 we're trying to commu- you know, communicate with. So um, can you tell us, like, you talk really interestingly in your article about the two protests that the, 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 the paper explores. Can you talk, to, talk, let's talk uh, through them because they were awesome. Yeah, I, I thought they were awesome too. I really enjoyed them. So protest number one, um, how- happened in the basement of the San Francisco Public Library, where um, a researcher, very prolific researcher, Melissa Farley, um, who has written a lot about, uh, you know, the sex industry and why she thinks it should be criminalized. Um, And she was on a panel in, in the library with some um, local law enforcement officials talking about sex trafficking. 
um, sex workers decided to protest this event, right? Of course, no sex workers were um, invited to speak. Um, it was this panel of experts who were actually um, vociferously <laughs> and um, adamantly continuing to do harm and to silence the voices of directly affected people um, despite repeated protests, right? And so sex workers came to protest this event. Um, the, the audience was filled, all the seats were filled with um, sex workers and supporters with red tape covering their mouths to, of course, demonstrate um, the silencing of people who should have been invited to speak on this panel instead. Um, and, you know, there was, um, at, at the end, you, some people shared uh, verbally stories about why Melissa Farley's research and why her insistence on speaking for people who could very well speak for themselves um, was harmful. Hmm. And she dismissed the sex worker activists as quote unquote, the sexually exploited elite, um, right? Like saying, I guess to her that meant false consciousness of a sort, <laughs> um, right? Like, like somehow um, she was qualified to speak for them because they didn't know what was happening for the, to them or something, right? Mm -hmm. So, so a literal silencing, um, and just this incredible paternalism in not even acknowledging the perspectives of the many activists that came to protest her panel and her research. Um, and so that was the first event. And that, um, you know, I, th I think that's a, an important example of paternalism in research. Yeah, I think it almost it's it almost verges on imperialism because when you talk about this, I think about Spivak and the and the voice of the subaltern is taken from them and is replaced by the voice of the the missionary who knows your yeah. story better. You know, yeah. it's like do they, uh, you know, it's almost like you, you imagine them like sort of like dressed up for safari. They are that colonial. You know, yeah. it's outrageous. It's it's yeah. And what was yeah. the second one? The second one was quite was quite poignant as well. Yeah, and in the second one, um, George Kelling, who of course, um, you know, kind of pioneered the theory of broken windows, in which kind of low level quality of life issues should be responded to according to him with aggressive policing. Um, was invited to the U.S. Conference of Mayors here in San Francisco to speak as a keynote speaker. Um, and of course, this is during a time when, um, you know, thousands of tickets for sitting, sleeping, resting in public space are being given to unhoused people on the streets of the city. Criminalization is ramping up. Um, and, you know, and this researcher is here 
to recommend that the criminalization should continue, right? And so, of course, um, people who were experiencing um, the brunt of this policing organized to protest. Um, and and notably, notably um, the San Francisco Coalition on Homelessness and Poor News Network um, came and kind of uh, eviscerated <laughs> Kelling's research and, um, you know, spread information to passerby about um, the practice of what Poor News Network calls we search, um, which really affirms the expertise of people who are living whatever the issue is. Mm. Uh, yeah. And I, I recommend um, Poor has a new book about poverty scholarship um, that I, I definitely recommend to any listeners who are interested. Okay, cool. I'll add that to the blog. There will there'll be a blog attached to this and I'll add this information to the blog. So if anyone's interested, they can go and research it. So, um, yeah, I always find it so shocking. It's like it's such a money-making sort of like aspect as well. The amount of money that's been generated from fines because of those, those, uh, those um, sort of researches as well. Um, so, like, your article, like, it really discusses, like, it makes, it's really sort of like, reflective and it talks about um, uh, research humility in the ethnographic context so can you just take a minute to discuss how your observations of humility in the context of say your research and the sex and the service providers in the peer-run clinics for sex workers I was I really enjoyed that yeah so um in the peer-run clinic for sex workers providers of course um, were almost always um, current or former sex workers themselves, right? Um, but also were people very attuned to um, differences in economic and housing stability, experiences across race and gender, um, substance use, and kind of all of the kind of axes of difference that could create those power imbalances and kind of that had the potential um, to undermine the goals and efficacy of peer-led care, which is to let people um, be the experts on their own experience and to provide survival resources without judgment, without strings attached, without stigma, right? Um, and what I saw among staff at this clinic was so powerful because they really took um, the time to reflect on their own um, identities and experiences positionality really yeah positionality but more than just reflecting right they understood kind of the limits of um kind of their own embodied experience or um visceral knowledge of something right like 
if someone, if a sex worker who worked in porn or who did indoor sex work was providing peer counseling um, with someone who did street-based sex work, um, the, the recognition of that staff member was, you know, um, this person has their own experience. I need to honor that. I need to know what I don't know. Um, and I need to let them direct the process and, and kind of share their needs. And it sounds very simple, um, but of course, you know, we know that in most, um, in most places where services are provided, um, those services come with strings attached. They come with punishment and with um, moralizing discourses and with attempts to control people's behavior and they come with condescension <laughs> and they come with, you know, um, literally in the case of one place I visited with a participant signs that say things like you're not working unless you're working on yourself, you know, just really, really harmful things. And so um, I think the intentional ethos of humility um, and recognition that you know, there are things that people who haven't directly experienced them just don't know. Um, and that the important thing is to be a good listener and, um, you know, support someone in whatever way they're asking for. Um, watching that made me really think about how that can also apply to research, not just service provision, right? And I think, you know, particularly in research, um, I guess like service provision, there's a similar type of general mainstream culture of professionalism and expertise. Um, and I think we really have to undo that yeah. and recognize that and really hope for ourselves <laughs> that, um, you know, we can admit uh, when we don't know something, you know, we can always hope that uh, we'll learn every single day and, and wake up tomorrow, you know, smarter than, um, than we were the day before, right? These are things that I always hope for myself. Um, but I think, I think the, the really key element is listening and not directing or coercing. Mm. Um, yeah. But also as well, I think so sometimes like, Sometimes people just have to get over their guilt of not belonging to a marginalized community. Like, yeah. like sorry you don't belong to a marginalized community. Forgive yourself. Yeah. Let's have a look what what qualities right. you've actually got that is of use use for this community. And I, I like how you describe uh solidarity research, like within the context of this um of this of this article. So can you can you kind of like talk us through solidarity uh, research and how it contrasts to say participatory active research? Yeah, and how you use it in this this article. Yes, and so I like what you said about um, you know often people just kind of wallowing in guilt and doing nothing um, because that is not the point of reflexivity, right? Um, I I think. You know, I'm not sure whether guilt is a particularly useful emotion or not. I think people should just um, try to you get, get you know get to that next step of taking 
action um, in a thoughtful way, right? So I think that um, participatory action research, like we talked about, um, is done with a team, right? Um, often it's a team of people who are directly affected by the problem and so they're defining the problem, um, supported by a researcher from a university often, but not always. Um, in solidarity research, um, the researcher is not, you know, working with um, a team of researchers who themselves are directly affected um, for whatever reason, you know, maybe, um, maybe it starts out as a dissertation, maybe it's, um, you know, folks are busy trying to organize politically and survive and research doesn't seem like the best use of their time in this context. But that doesn't mean that that research project can't have um, kind of social and political change goals that are defined in collaboration with, um, you know, people who are most directly affected by the problems at, at hand. And so to me, what solidarity means is providing support um, in a way that, you know, is, is defined um, by the participants in, in the project. Um, a lot of times that's explicitly asking um, what they need. Yeah. <laughs> what can you I know, do? <laughs> if I can support that, then I'm, of course, going to. Um, yeah. But research is inherently political. Um, knowledge production is inherently political. It is not objective. No, it's not. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's really funny because a colleague of mine a few weeks ago did a webinar that was aimed. She's she's a she's a she's an out sex worker named Victoria Holt, and she she did a webinar for researchers, and she's basically she talks about the the kind of orientalism of sex workers by some researchers, and I think there's come a time where actually, you know what, you know, there's a kind of almost an exoticism around sex workers. That, that maybe what we people need to do is own the fact that they want to be around sex workers and just own that. It's like, yeah, I want to be around. Like, not I'm here yeah. to help. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you know, I think sometimes like maybe like our biggest skill set as as researchers is the fact that we've got like access to stuff. Like we've got access to journals. We've got access mm -hmm. to you know yeah. sometimes like you know sort of like funding and stuff to make a change. You know, we do serve. We can serve a role if we work with, but we don't have to necessarily turn up with the offer of help, I'm here to help, I'm here to yeah. rescue. Right, because help is, is rescue, it's colonial, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that, you know, the, the best type of support is often material support. Yeah. Right, and, and a lot of times that means money. Yeah. And so <laughs> if researchers can, um, you know, get resources from a university, um, in the form of money <laughs> or stipends or, you know, whatever else, um, that can often be more helpful, um, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm all so, like some ethnic ethnographies, I think, are needed rather than those kind of like hit and run researches. It's like longer yeah. term ethnographies. So with that in mind, 
who did you write this article for? So I wrote it for researchers or people who are thinking about doing research mm-hmm. um, because I, I, and particularly ethnographic research and particularly ethnographic research or any, any type of research with marginalized groups um, because I wanted to, to share some of my thought process and experiences um, in hopes that others who, you know, were thinking about doing research or in the process of doing research or who had similar kind of questions percolating um, could read it and, and find something useful. Um, yeah, I think it's a really good way to sort of center people's um, sort of self-awareness, their, their positionality, you know, and you know, I, I found it really useful. I read it and I was really kind of, you know, I, you know, I reached out to you because I'd read this article and I really wanted to like see where you were coming from. So this is the chance here for you, some shame, shameless self-plugging on your part. So what are you working on now? So I told you a little bit at the beginning um, about the book that I'm working on. Um, right now, the title is Abolitionist Care. Um, and it is really just, you know, I think we talked about how research is always political. It's in support of the movement to end policing um, and kind of, you know, policing in organizations that purport to provide care as well, right? So we've talked about criminalization of poverty, of um, homelessness, of sex work, um, but these types of carceral logics also govern most of the time the provision of services that are supposed to relieve poverty, right? And they end up, these these services, um, including homeless shelters, including drug rehab, um, end up actually perpetuating poverty and inequality. And so... (laughs) What I really felt, um, what made me feel hopeful uh, was seeing how that could be different. Um, And so, you know, there are two um, wonderful organizations here in San Francisco that, um, that I really found to be examples of abolitionist care, of care that rejects carceral logics, of care that, um, you know, doesn't just help people survive, but helps to challenge systems of inequality. Um, And I wanted to kind of share these examples with readers and help readers, including aspiring social workers or other, you know, service providers, imagine something different um, based on the ways that people are actually doing something different right now. Um, And those are only two of, you know, um, many examples of people who are providing care for their own communities um, in ways that really challenge oppression and inequality excellent excellent so just for just as we round this up um can you just give us the name of the article that we've just reviewed and who you are 
Yes, so my name is Dilara Yarbrough, um, and my article is Nothing About Us Without Us, Reading Protests Against Oppressive Knowledge Production as Guidelines for Solidarity, Solidarity Research. Excellent. And my name is Rachel Stewart, and I'm a PhD research student at the University of Kent, whose specialism is the lived experience of sex workers. Thank you.